We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now that's what I call science. We stand with the Palawa and Pakana of Luchuita, along with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples Australia-wide. We wish to firmly acknowledge that Aboriginal and Torres Strait sovereignty was never ceded. It was and always will be Aboriginal. It was and always will be Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander land. Australia is the only settler colonial state which does not formally recognise the dispossession caused by colonialism. Carried by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and the land and sea which we call home is the world's oldest continuing living culture, dating back to over 65,000 years. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples were the first artists, scientists, creators, storytellers and so much more. Today and always, we acknowledge and honour the depth and richness of these cultures. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices will never be silenced. We at Twix will work harder to not only stand alongside, but to amplify Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voices. And we invite you, the listener, to do so as well. Hello listeners, you're tuned into That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio and podcast show bringing you independent and interesting STEM, so that's science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine, to you from Tasmania. This show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium news station. So head on over to edge.org.au for more information about them. My name is Ollie Dove and I'm joined today by my co-host Hannah McCleary. Today we have a very special birthday episode for you. But it's not Twix's birthday and it's actually not a person's birthday and it's actually not even really a birthday, but it's kind of a boat's birthday. But over to Hannah to explain that very cryptic opener of an episode for you and to introduce our guest that is representing the birthday boat. Thanks, Ollie. And you're right, we are celebrating a special milestone today in that an iconic Australian research vessel, the RV Investigator, has just set sail on its 100th voyage. So a birthday of sorts, although I should say Ollie confused me a little bit when she said it was the Investigator's 100th birthday. I thought she meant it was actually 100 and I thought there is no way, there is no way because I've worked a little bit on the ship um, as we'll find out later in the episode. But to tell us more about the RV Investigator and its history, we have a long-term friend of That's What I Call Science and myself. Um, You may even recognise him from earlier episodes. We have Dr Ben Arthur with us today. Thanks so much for joining us today, Ben. Um, And before we sort of talk about what the RV Investigator has been up to across the past 99 voyages, can you give listeners a bit of a description about what the ship is like? So how big it is? what's on it, what it looks like. Just give us a bit of a visual. Yeah, sure. So RV stands for Research Vessel. Investigator is Australia's national offshore marine science vessel. So we're very lucky in Australia. We have the third biggest marine territory of any country on earth. Um, And we have this one dedicated vessel that has the responsibility to do marine science out there in the open ocean. We have some smaller coastal vessels that do work around places like the Great Barrier Reef and so on, but if you think about offshore marine science, that's the RV investigator. So given that it's the kind of one ship that we have for that, it is multidisciplinary in the kind of science that it can deliver. So you know, when you talk about marine science, most people have, I guess, a fairly narrow idea about what marine science is. 
if you go to a you know a primary school and talk to a bunch of grade threes, they'll say marine science is all about dolphins and penguins, which is obviously an important part of it. But it's much broader than that, as we know. So investigator has to support and deliver marine science on the sea floor. So things like marine geoscience, uh, oceanography, obviously about the physical and the chemical properties of the water, the marine biology, and then also the kind of atmospheric sciences and you know marine science technology and even a bit of kind of maritime archaeology as well. Um, so the vessel is you know pretty impressive in how it's been designed because it has to be very very flexible to support all that different kind of marine science and by the nature of it all the different kind of marine science equipment that you'll have to put on to deliver oceanography one day and then seafloor mapping surveys the next day um, so you know a fairly sizable vessel we're talking 94 meters long 18 and a half meters across the beam 10 internal decks 10 stories um, so a fairly impressive ship. So, you know, we've got a fairly large endurance. 60 days is the longest voyage that we can do. So 60 days will get us, you know, over 10,000 nautical miles. So we can basically get anywhere in Australia from anywhere in Australia. So we can cover, you know, all of the oceans that we own. And we can take up to 60 researchers and crew and support staff on board any of our voyages. So they're fairly complex things. How does someone become one of those 60? Like, how do you pick which projects are you doing? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So, you know, I, I'm, I work at the CSIRO and the CSIRO owns and operates the vessel. But it's unique in how we run it. So it's, it's actually what's called a national facility. So it's a piece of infrastructure, you know, marine research infrastructure that CSIRO runs on behalf of the Australian research community. So any researcher in Australia can apply to come on board. So once a year we have an applications process where we say to the science community, um, you know, what research would you like to do with the ship? And they write in an application and we have some independent committees that assess, you know, the quality of the research and the benefit to the country as a whole of doing that research. They make recommendations. And then ultimately, if you're successful, you get the ship and, you know, let's say hypothetically your research was going to be on undersea volcanoes, seamounts, we'll give you the ship. You can go and study seamounts in whatever area you've decided for I don't know, like say 30 days, and it costs you as a researcher nothing. So everything's provided, the time on board the ship, all of the equipment that are needed, all of the support staff to plan and run your voyage. So it's a piece of infrastructure that we run so that anyone can use it. What sort of scientific equipment is on the boat? Are there any some like big fancy machines that live on the boat all the time? Lots of big fancy machines that live on the boat. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that is, I guess you can break it down into two groups, the stuff that is attached to the vessel and then the equipment that we add on depending on what the voyage needs are. So some of the stuff that's included in that and, you know, attached to the vessel all the time are particularly the acoustic systems and that's what Mia makes Investigator kind of pretty unique. So, you know, under Investigator's hull we have something called a gondola which is a massive big almost look like a small kind of aeroplane wing and that is actually attached about 1.2 metres below the hull of the ship and it's packed full of acoustic um, instrumentation. Um, So think of that like if you've got a you know an aluminium tinny and you go fishing with it and you've got a fish finder that you bought from a shop which sends out you know pulses of sound waves down to hit something and then return up to the your vessel to look for fish. We just have that, but just a much, much, much bigger and fancier and much more expensive version. And we're using that to effectively map the sea floor. And we're also mapping, you know, marine life in the water column as well using that. Um, But with that system, we can map full ocean depth. So previous vessels and the previous CSIRO research vessel that we had, we were limited to a couple of thousand metres depth. With Investigator, we can map the deepest part of the ocean. So the Mariana Trench, 11,500 metres 
so, you know, there's nowhere that's kind of off limits for us. And because of that, we're constantly mapping new bits of the ocean that we haven't been able to map before. Um, the ship has a weather radar on top of it. So very similar to if you pull out your smartphone and have a look at, you know, what rain might be coming. The Bureau of Meteorology has radars that are on shore. Investigator was one of the first research vessels that actually had a, a fully blown meteorological research radar on a vessel. And that presented a whole bunch of engineering challenges because weather radars work best when they have a constant line of sight to a level horizon, which is very, very rare on a ship because ships are always moving around. Um, so that was a particularly impressive engineering challenge to get that on board. And, you know, um, a lot of our researchers, particularly the Bureau of Meteorology, love collecting the data from that out at sea because the observations are so infrequent out at sea. We were saying earlier that the investigator can go from anywhere in Australia to anywhere in Australia. Is there anywhere that it can't go? So the ship is not an icebreaker. So although we are strengthened, the acoustic instrumentation and some of the the drop keels and so on that we have that enable the oceanographic research, they extend through the hull. Um, And we try and stay away from kind of large bits of sea ice because they're a little bit delicate and we don't want to go kind of knocking them around too much. So we tend to kind of go as far as the edge of the sea ice and we do some work kind of in really kind of light kind of sea ice areas but we don't go kind of full on into the depths um, of you know breaking ice and those kind of things but anywhere else we're pretty well comfortable going. Awesome stick with us for part two listeners as we continue our voyage across the ocean. You're listening to That's What I Call Science and we're at sea for today's episode. My name is Hannah McCleary and I'm joined by Ollie Dove along with our expert guest, Dr Ben Arthur from CSIRO. Okay, Ben, let's talk about some of the voyages that the RV investigator has done. Can you cast our listeners' minds back to the first voyage that was done by the RV investigator and tell us a little bit about what that involved? Yeah, so the first voyage effectively was the ship's delivery voyage in 2014. So the ship was um, purpose-built and what was quite exciting for us was that that's the first time we've actually had the opportunity to purpose design and build a research vessel. Our previous ones had been second-hand ships, you know, fishing trawlers and so on that we'd bought and then retrofitted to do marine science with. So when Investigator sailed um, up the Derwent River in 2014, it came all the way from Singapore, which is the shipyard that it was built in, um, the, you know, the docks and the wharf down here were, were lined with everyone from CSIRO, you know, waiting to get their first glimpse of that ship as it came up the river. So that was super exciting. Ben, can you let us know how far the RV Investigator has travelled in total across its 99 voyages so far? So we, we did the numbers and kind of, you know, put all of our data together and worked out that it was over 458,000 kilometres travelled. So that's equivalent to 12 times around the globe. Um, wow. So it's a fairly impressive amount of ocean that's been covered um, across those last 99 voyages. And we recently heard or saw that the Noyina couldn't refuel here in Hobart and awkwardly sort of had to go elsewhere. Across those 99 voyages covering, what was it, 480,000 kilometres? Yeah, 458. Uh, 458. Um, Have there been any similar tales? Look, doing marine science is inherently complicated because you are doing things that a lot of other ships don't want to do. And if you talk to our crew, for example, you know, they come from um, sailing on other vessels where... Basically, what we ask them to do on Investigator is everything that they're told not to do when they go to Maritime College. So, you know, they're told to stay away from areas that you don't know 
what's on the seafloor, for example, or are unmapped or uncharted, um, to stay away from things that are dangling in the water column. We ask our crew all the time to take the ship over there because we don't know what's on the seafloor and deploy this piece of equipment and dangle it below the ship, you know, which is a risk to getting entangled around the props and so on. So you know, there's always the potential for things to go wrong, particularly when you deploy equipment over the side. So always a risk that if you put something in the water it may not come back. And we've had that happen, you know, only once or twice in 99 voyages, but when you're talking about a piece of equipment that's, you know, half a million dollars or so, it is kind of an expensive insurance claim to put in when it doesn't come back, unfortunately. Ben, I know that you've been out on the RV Investigator quite a few times. Can you let our listeners know how many times you've been out on a voyage and maybe tell us about your favourite one or one that you've particularly enjoyed? Oh, yeah, no, I, I did tally this up. So I, I'd just done my 12th voyage. Um, so I feel very lucky to have done that. And actually the thing that I think I feel most lucky about is that I've actually completed a full circumnavigation of the Australian continent on board Investigator. Picking your favourite voyage is kind of like trying to been asked to pick your favourite child. <laughs> it's a bit tricky, but I do I do remember um, the first voyage that I actually went into the tropics. So I'd done a lot of work on other vessels in the Southern Ocean, um, and I love the Southern Ocean, but you do get kind of a little bit tired of how rough the Southern Ocean can be and, you know, dealing in that environment with the weather and that kind of thing. And I did a voyage where we sailed all the way from Sydney to round the top of Australia to Broome, and that was the first time I'd ever been to that part of the world. And that was super eye-opening for you know, a couple of reasons. First of all, it's calm, and I had no idea that the ocean could be dead calm for like three weeks. That was kind of remarkable. But also just seeing the wildlife that exists in that part of the world, you know, things like turtles and sea snakes and that kind of stuff was completely different. You know, and seeing the Torres Strait and sailing through there and you know, looking at those islands and so on was, was very memorable. Thinking about Southern Ocean voyages, can you tell our listeners about um, some of the difficulties you might experience on board in terms of seasickness, in terms of length, in terms of temperature, um, that sort of thing compared to the, the really nice voyages um, in the north? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. So, you know, when we're planning for voyages, obviously the environment that we're doing it in throws up different challenges. So, you know, in the Southern Ocean, for example, you're right, they would tend to be our longer voyages. So if we're going to go to do a Southern Ocean voyage, that would often be, you know, upwards of 50 or 60 days because it just takes, depending on what part of Antarctica, for example, you want to go to, it takes at least, you know, seven to 10 days from Hobart just to get there. So you want to spend a whole bunch of time actually down there when you finally get there. Um, you know, the ship deals very well with the environment. Um, so it deals with, obviously, the cold temperatures very well. Um, it deals with the swells and the storms very well, often much better than the people on board do. So, you know, I've been in Southern Ocean voyages where we've been in kind of 17-metre seas and, you know, just moving around the vessel safely is a challenge. Staying in bed asleep without falling out in the middle of the night is difficult. You know, your plates just slide off the table in the mess, that kind of thing. So you do have to kind of be mindful of, you know, how people want to operate in that environment. Obviously, when it's that rough, you can't get a lot of work done. Um, but even when it's calmed down a bit and you're still in kind of five or six metre seas, the ship can do work and we can get research done, but there's often people who aren't feeling the best in that environment. So, you know, if you're on board, particularly in the kind of capacity as a voyage manager, you're constantly mindful of people who may not be feeling as good as other people are on board and kind of managing that. And it's just part of the job. There's no shame in it. I've seen the captain of the ship throw up on Southern Ocean <laughs> voyages. So it can happen to anyone. So we've got to be mindful of that. On those really long voyages too, you're talking about things like, you know, people's mental health, just for being away from, you know, family and friends and home for that amount of time. You know, and being crammed into a ship with 60 other people, it's a, it's a weird social environment too for that, that period of time. So you've got to be mindful of how people are getting on and interacting and those kind of things with everyone. And then, you know, once you do those really long voyages, you're 
simple stuff like you start running out of fresh fruit and those kind of things towards the end of the voyage. So, you know, you've got to be making sure you're eating well as, as well. That's great that you brought up the mental health and the social side of things because I wanted to ask, 60 days is a long time to be with the same cohort of people. What does free time or social activities look like? Yeah, look, and it, it is a great question. So, and, and the things I think that make the, the mental health and the social side of things a bit easier then even when I first started going on research voyages, it's just the communications back home now are so much better. Like we can, you can pick up the phone anywhere on the ship and ring basically back to shore straight away. Um, a lot of the time our internet connections are good enough to do you know, Skype and Facebook video calls and stuff back to your families, which obviously is, is really great. We do structure some stuff, so we try and you know we try and structure a normal day when we're at sea, and we kind of you know we like to keep track of the week, so we always have you know a funky shirt Friday, and we try and mark you know what might be for dinner on Sunday night and those kind of things. So we try and keep a, a bit of a routine. Um, yeah, we run you know science seminars and so on. We've got pretty good connections on the ship, so that you know we get satellite TV, so that you know you can watch the footy on Friday night and that kind of stuff. So you keep it a little bit like you know it's a normal week for you, even though you may be bobbing around um, in the middle of the ocean. But people come up with their own various ways of having downtime and so on. And that's part of the one of the fun things about voyages is that each voyage is different. Some voyage, you know, they may get super into having a table tennis competition or darts competition. Others I've seen, you know, like the whole science party get completely obsessed with doing like crocheting on board because one of the senior scientists she's brought a crocheting kit on board and then all of a sudden you're at the end of the voyage and you've got all these young scientists who are madly trying to finish up their crocheting so it's, it's just completely different which is one of the nice things about it absolutely stick with us for part three as we step off board from the rv investigator and hear more about ben's adventures You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Hannah McCleary and I'm joined by Ollie Dove along with our expert guest, Dr Ben Arthur from CSIRO. Now Ben, we've heard quite a bit about the RV Investigator but we'd love to explore more about what your role is at CSIRO and your personal connection to marine science. Can you describe to listeners what your role is at CSIRO? Yeah, so I I go on board... um Wearing various hats, it really depends. So, you know, I my, my kind of, I guess my day job is called the Engagement Programs Coordinator with the vessel. So I'm kind of responsible for our kind of education, training and outreach um, programs and activities that we do around the ship. So we, some, you know, we run scholarship programs to have people like Hannah McCleary on board, um, do some kind of teaching voyages where we actually take university students and, and teach them like effectively marine science at sea, those kind of things, and then, you know, kind of the public outreach side of things as well. You know, but also I go on board as a voyage manager and, and so on as well. So it's, it's, it's very varied, which is one of the, the nice things about it. And does your role look different day to day when you're on a voyage to when you're back on land? Yeah, completely. So when you're at the, on on the ship, it is it is very very different. So um, you know, obviously your day is structured very differently. You know, the ship is a twenty four hour a day, seven day operation when it's out at sea. So particularly if you're a voyage manager, you are effectively almost on call for twenty four hours a day because you need to be across all the operations that are happening. And you might find that one day, you know, you're up at five a.m. You know, with sunrise to try and determine what the weather's like if we're going to be planning an all day operation. Um, you know, the next day you might have a, a bit more of a quieter day where you've got to you know catch up on some paperwork and that kind of stuff. But it is certainly very different than a, a standard you know day back in the office here on land. Can you give our listeners an overview of how you ended up in this role? What came before? Yeah, I mean, so you know, my my background is in marine science. It's um, 
you know, I, 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 did a, I did a PhD in marine science, mostly with kind of animal movement ecology and looking where species are going in the Southern Ocean. Um, but I actually then, at the same time as, as kind of doing that work, used to do a bit of initially volunteering and then some kind of, you know, some paid work in kind of science outreach, you know. And my first go at that was we'd, we'd travel around schools and run travelling science shows for them. And so, you know, so you turn up to a school and talk about whatever it is and, you know, maybe blow up some chemicals and do whatever. So that kind of fun stuff. And then as I kind of, you know, f- finished my PhD and, and I guess, you know, advanced my career a little bit more, I saw that there might be some need to maybe combine those two things. So, you know, the, the ship that we're talking about here is, you know, effectively the Australian marine science ship. It's funded almost exclusively by public money. So therefore we have a responsibility to engage with people um, and, you know, talk to them and describe to them what we're doing with their funds and why it actually matters. That's where I kind of worked out that we could actually put those kind of two roles together, that kind of marine science and that kind of science engagement, science outreach roles um, into into a role that I, I currently feel, I guess. Yeah, that's so awesome. And a couple of months ago, I saw you at the Festival of Bright Ideas standing outside a sort of shed-looking thing that was very blue, and I unfortunately didn't have a chance to find out more. But I think you were there for RV Investigator. What were you up to? Yeah, so... This is a, a, a new project that we've built. It, it's a shipping container. So and when you run a research vessel, you have a lot of shipping containers. And we were kind of wondering, you know, how we can get the investigator out to people. So, you know, we really only go to half a dozen ports around the country. Um, but what about the rest of Australia that we're never, ever going to get to? So what we've effectively done is we've converted one of our shipping containers into an immersive marine science cinema. So you walk in, it's got, you know, floor-to-ceiling wraparound screens and we've got all sorts of kind of info and experiences in there about the kind of work that an RV investigator does. So, you know, that's a brand new thing. It's hitting the road and will be travelling um, around the country in the next year or two, which is going to be fantastic. That is so exciting. That sounds really cool. I'm so sad that I missed it, that I didn't get to go inside. Um, so you've just mentioned that's coming up in the next year or two. Are there any other exciting projects maybe back out at sea that you're headed to in 2024? Oh, look, it's it, there's always exciting projects. So, I mean, I've, I've got a couple of voyages, I think, on the horizon for next year. There is always really exciting voyages that the ship's doing, whether I'm on board or not. So to give you an idea, we spend about 300 days a year out at sea. You know, So we'll be starting off the year, I guess, with our big Southern Ocean voyage, which is about a 60-day voyage down into the Southern Ocean in January. And then a whole bunch of work kind of around the southeast part of the, the country, I think, and then kind of you know, heading further afield up the East Australia Current. We found we're doing a lot of work in the East Australia Current with the changes that we're seeing. You know, anyone who's seen Finding Nemo would know about the EAC. That's getting warmer and stronger and bringing more tropical water further south. And with that, a whole bunch of new marine species are turning up in places like Victoria and Tassie. Um, so we found that we've actually spent a fair bit of time researching that part of the ocean too, which is which is really important. And it's really cool to be, I guess, there at the forefront of doing research in this kind of rapidly changing part of the world's oceans too. So that's, that's, there's going to be some of those voyages next year too. Um, now, we're quite biased here at That's What I Call Science and um, obviously know about the value of science communication and, and pushing a science that's digestible to, you know, everybody um, out to the public. But I just wanted to hear from you about um, why you think science communication is important. If I put my kind of marine science and ocean lens on it, I think it's, it's important because the ocean is super important to all Australians. You know, the majority of Australians live very close to the ocean um, and even if you live in somewhere like Alice Springs, for example, what happens in the ocean has a direct effect on your life every single day. And it's often easy for us to perhaps ignore our oceans because obviously we, uh, the majority of us don't actually tend to spend a lot of time on them. 
And what I think is important is to kind of, you know, disentangle some of the really complicated stuff. You know, oceanographic research and fisheries research and so on can be really complicated. If you start getting into it, you know, the amount of maths and equations and, you know, oceanic models and climate models and that kind of stuff that you're talking about is is really dense and really difficult stuff to wrap your head around. Um, but it doesn't need to be in the way that we communicate the impact that it has on the lives of Australians doesn't need to be complicated. So, you know, I think part of what our responsibility is, is yes, we may be out in the Southern Ocean doing a really complicated oceanographic voyage using fancy instruments and all sorts of stuff, but we have a responsibility to say to the Australian public, well, this is what this research is actually means for you. You know, you are effectively funding this research. Um, all of our research has to be assessed to the benefit of the nation, so it, it clearly has one. But it's not good enough. If we know it has one, the public has to know it has one as well. And it's our duty, I guess, to put it in a format that not only they can understand, but actually they want to understand. So it excites them as well. And that's what I think good science communication should be about. To wrap up our interview today, are there any tips that you could give our listeners for integrating a love or a passion for science communication into their day-to-day work? Oh, it's, I think, um, being willing to put yourself out there and meet people. Because you know a lot of opportunities come around to you just by who you know and who you've met, and you know, and whether that's going to conferences and just introducing yourself to people, um, or you know, putting your hand up to go on volunteer opportunities initially as students and so on, um, go on voyages, whatever that might be, um, because you'll often find that there's people out there who will be looking for someone to fill a particular role or whatever it might be. And if, you know, they know of you or they know of you, um, then often those opportunities you'll find will, will come your way a bit more. We're, you know, increasingly starting to place a recognised value on people with um, SciComm and SciOutreach um, expertise. So I know, for example, I know a, a bunch of my colleagues who even though they're, they're researchers, they've actually managed to negotiate a portion of their job, a time, you know, 10%, 20%, whatever, that they can dedicate to doing science communications and their employer, employer now recognises the value of them doing that. Um, so it's, it's becoming something that you can actually advocate for and push for to say, hey, yes, I'm a researcher, I'm also skilled at doing science outreach or science communications, but I want you to pay me to do that. I don't want to have to do it in my spare time. And I think we, we're starting to get to a point in a lot of places where people can start demanding that, which is fantastic. So I'd encourage people, if they have that interest, to have that conversation with whoever it is that's paying them in the end to say, no, I've got skills here. You need to pay me to do this. Yes, I'm all about getting the payment to do SciCom. I love that. So thank you so much for talking with us today, Ben, and happy voyage birthday to the RV investigator. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you STEM-related content, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you love the show today, you can get in touch with us by searching That's What I Call Science or That Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. My name is Ollie Dove, and I'd like to extend a huge thank you to my co-host, Hannah McCleary, and our expert guest, Dr. Ben Arthur, representing the RV Investigator on this very exciting time. So from us, hope you all have a wonderful week. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. That's What I Call Science is brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find the show at all major podcast streaming services and find out more about us from our social media channels. Make sure you like and subscribe to keep up with all the exciting science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine research in Lutrita, Tasmania. 
This show is supported and strengthened by Edge Radio. So head over to edgeradio.org.au for more information about them. Thanks for tuning in today, and may your week be stemtastic.